Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm good. I've been journaling a lot to work on my mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today I was journaling about when I last went out clubbing. Mm-hmm. Journal club. Journal club. Yep. Journal club. Scrub a dub dub. Journal club. It's time for journal club. So, Jane, you wanted to talk about a paper, so we're we're trying a new episode format where we we look at a paper that we read recently, and uh, talk through it. So, what's the paper you've chosen? So, uh, my paper is Discontinuing Beta-Lactam Treatment After Three Days for Patients with Community-Acquired Pneumonia in Non-Critical Wards, a Double-Blind, Randomized, Placebo-Controlled, Non-Inferiority Trial. It was published in The Lancet in 2021. We'll include a link to it in the show notes. It's a snappy title. <clears throat> so it is. Very, very accurate, though, of what it is. Is there something strange about, like, you know, the arrest trial, the the recovery trial? You know, you need a, a clever, you know, way of, of summarizing it. But uh, yeah, true. But sometimes none of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah. sometimes... Also, I think I prefer no an acronym to one that's really shoehorned in. Mm. You just, you're no, just no, 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 no. Like... I think. That... No, I disagree strongly. The more esoteric, the better. Oh, using God. using letters in the middle of words and all that. I love. Or maybe all that put stuff. a colon in the middle of the word. That's just the worst type of nonsense. Ah. Well, you've chosen this paper. You told us the title. Why did you choose it? Why, why is it important? Well, I mean, why did I do it? Because somebody told me I had to do a journal club. That's why. So this is uh, extrapolated from work. But why is the paper important? Because duration of antibiotics is a stewardship issue. So we spend a lot of time talking about which antibiotic to use. And, you know, uh, we've waxed a little about clinical teams choosing the wrong antibiotic, choosing a broad antibiotic, not narrowing down in time. But one of the major ways that you can prevent exposure to any antibiotic is just by limiting the duration for each indication and there's been a trend over the years hasn't there of long durations being shortened down and this is kind of exemplified by the by the shorter is better movement spearheaded by the one and only brad spellberg but talking for a moment about pneumonia which is the topic of this trial the standard therapy in the eu guidance which i have to admit calm i had never read didn't know existed before uh, this journal club is eight days did you know that? Did you know that ECDC had a guidance line at all? I guess because we had UK guidance that was quite good and really go looking for other guidance. Yeah. And I, I, I guess we're kind of lucky in that NICE have taken it upon themselves to produce kind of fairly standardized guidance uh, now for uh, various infections, including uh, pneumonias. But even before then, for guidance, I would I would usually you look to nice or sign or local guidance in our antimicrobial uh, app 
uh, of choice, be it microguide or, or something else. Or I would look and see what the IDSA uh, uh, advised. I have to admit, I never really uh, thought about looking for uh, SMID. Um, it was that produced this uh, guidance, but, but produced it, they did. Uh, it was in 2011 and hadn't been updated since then. And the authors here, uh, French authors, are aware, no doubt, of the Shorter is Better movement um, and decided to experiment and see if we could uh, stop beta-lactam antibiotics, not at eight days, not even at five days, but at three. And five days is what's in the UK guidance for standard therapy. Yes, and and the short bit of Shorter is Better is three to five days um, uh compared to 5 to 14, and that's it, 14 randomized control trials of about 8,700 patients, which also incidentally includes this paper now, the one that I'm presenting. Um, so why don't I tell you about the PICO, uh, Callum? Uh, so the population that the authors were looking at were inpatients in a variety of hospitals uh, throughout France, uh, where the trial was conducted, with moderate CAP. And that definition is not in the community, so they're in hospital, but not in intensive care. So that can be, you know, curb one, two, three, four, or even five pneumonia, as long as they have been admitted to hospital, but have not gotten into the ITU yet. The intervention uh, was cessation of all antibiotics at 72 hours, and we'll discuss about which ones uh, shortly. The comparator was a further five days of comoxiclav, and the dosage here was a thousand over one two five, uh, three times a day. So in the UK, we don't have access to a pill that contains a gram of amoxicillin with one hundred twenty five of clavulanic acid. What we would do to give this dosage is we would give um, a comoxiclav tablet with five hundred milligrams of amoxicillin three times a day, uh, and that we call that boosted comoxiclav. Well, uh, they don't need to do that in Europe because they've actually got access to the right uh, size of pill. And then the outcome was clinical cure at 15 days after starting of, of therapy. The inclusion criteria are worth chatting about. They did it in uh, adults defined as over 18 years. They had a definition for sort of CAP, uh, which was one of breathlessness, cough, purulent sputum or crackles and fever in the two days prior to admission and a lung infiltrate either on chest x-ray or CT and that can be at day zero or at day three uh, post-admission so at the at the point at which you either stop antibiotics or or continue them on and the 72 hours of treatment that they had had to be with either colmoxiclav or third generation cephalosporin and they're the default uh, treatment options in in France, uh, or at least they were at the time. And they had a definition for clinical response at 72 hours. So that you had to hit all these criteria in order for you to then be randomized to either the long arm or the short arm. And that was respiratory rate of under 24, sats of greater than or equal to 90, pulse under 100, systolic blood pressure over or equal to 90, they had to be afebrile and they had to have normal mental status. Or in other words, all their SERS criteria uh, had to be normal uh, in order to 
be, be then randomized. And they had a few exclusions as well. So they, they didn't look at HAPs or aspiration pneumonias. You had to have purely pneumonia. You couldn't have any other infection. You couldn't be immunosuppressed. They didn't look at atypicals. Um, and the other big exclusion was severe or complicated pneumonia. So the presence of an abscess, a uh, large pleural effusion, or a chronic respiratory infection. Question. So the inclusion criteria, they, or the exclusion criteria rather, they talked about not including patients with Legionella or, or atypicals. So how did they differentiate? Because obviously in the UK, if the CURB was was too, uh, you consider atypical covering, CURB-free, you would be adding it in. Mm. So how well, I mean, that's not universal either, Cal, because um, down here in NATO South, if your CURB is too, you just get covered. You just get yeah. double covered anyway. So we've moved towards saying if the signs feature suggestive. So how did they identify those patients? Did they have like rapid legionella urinary antigen that they were using or were they doing rapid respiratory PCR or? Um, I Unclinical. can't remember from reading the paper, but I think from memory, they, because the inclusion criteria sort of includes lung infiltrate and they had to have a clinical response at 72 hours with stuff that is only a cell wall agent, then atypical pneumonia was effectively excluded. And I don't know, I can't remember if they mandated any testing like Legionella antigen or, um, you know, a respiratory PCR on, on sputum for, uh, or throat for mycoplasma or chlamydophila. Yeah, it just says suspected or confirmed Legionellosis. Yeah. So maybe that was just, you know, going on clinical syndrome because Legionella, if you ever see somebody who's actually got it, I mean, they're pretty, pretty sick. It's a pretty nasty necrotic pneumonia. It it looks different, doesn't it? To We talked about this in our typicals. Yeah, although episode. I don't know if like I, I would say confident that at the front door in that early or even at three days that it's entirely clear, like, you know, it can be low bar pneumonia. Well, but Callum, what about at three days when they've not had any typicals cover and they've clinically responded? You know, all of a sudden you're in a, a pretty uh, limited group there and those people are likely to have been infected with strep pneumonia yeah. or, or viruses. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's also yeah. like, like clinical thing of the, of the study, which is if you've got some really severe pneumonia, you, you kind of want to cover Legionella. And so I wonder, you know, they, they talk about, we'll get back onto this. But well, but one of the exclusions is severe pneumonia. Yeah, I guess that is, that is it. <laughs> but it's just, you know, if you've got not that severe Legionella. Um, but then anyway, that's the side because they, 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 they showed the non-inferiority. So, mm-hmm. so the, the study ran for five years, uh, December 2013 to February 2018. Assessment for inclusion was done at the 72-hour uh, mark, and they did permuted block randomization. So they they uh, did randomization, but they stratified the randomization by site and PSI score. Now, Calum, have you heard of PSI score? Yes. Oh, then please take us through it. I've never used it. I've read about it in studies because I think it's okay. often used in a research context. Uh, yeah, you're right. And do you know why it's used in the research context? Because it's a bit of a pain to do. It's ludicrously difficult uh, to do. So let me tell, I'm going to bring it up on MD Calc now. So the first thing to say is that your age in years gives you that many points. So if you're 40, you get 40 points. If you're 70, you get 70 points. That sounds really easy. So the cutoff is 
you know, greater or less than 70. So if you're seven, over 70 years old, you're already in the high risk uh, group here. And then your other parameters for which you gain or lose between 10 and 30 points are sex, whether or not you're a nursing home resident, neoplastic disease, liver disease, heart failure history, cerebrovascular disease history, renal disease history, altered mental status, respiratory over 30, systolic less than 90, temperature less than 35 or over 39.9, pulse greater than or equal to 125, a pH of less than 7.35, a blood urea nitrogen of greater than 30 or greater than 11, a urea greater than 11, uh, that is, sodium less than 130, glucose greater than or equal to 14, hematocrit less than 30%, partial pressure of oxygen less than 60 or 8 kilopascals if you work in the new money, and presence or absence of pleural effusion on the chest x-ray. You know, I guess you could compare it to its, its direct competitor is Curb 65, which is a really simple score. You can which is five things, four of which you can look at the yes. patient and find out, and one of which is like the urea, and which the, is my, in the use knees, which is the second commonest yeah. blood test that we take. And PSI is slightly better at determining who might need to go to ICU. It's slightly more sensitive, but Curb 65 is more specific for looking for death. There's not much of a notches between them. Well, no, Callum, I disagree because the one thing that everybody who has ever created a uh, risk scoring system for pneumonia that wasn't the Curb 65 guy, whoever that is, you know, Stephen Curb, uh, I'm sure his name is, forgot to think of was to keep it simple because this is not simple. You know, and PSI and SmartCop, and there's a bunch of other risk calculators. Usually what happens is they come out and they say, oh, if you use us, we're actually going to be better at predicting mortality and whether or not they get into intensive care than the CURB65 score. And everybody says, great, that's lovely. And they just keep on using the CURB65 score because it's simple and it's easy and anyone can do it. So two things. One is John McFarlane who came up with the curb 65 so credit where credit's due is awesome oh, yeah. and the other thing i would I, I would say is that i agree that things should be easy to use for the way in which we use them at the moment which is you know sitting down with your app or pen and paper or whatever you're doing it and then putting it in mm. but i think i disagree that that's how we should do it and we're in a data rich era with computers that can do amazing amounts of data processing and yet we don't integrate these sort of risk calculators into our, into our uh, electronic patient records or uh, even use in the UK. We don't really use decision support that much or at all. And so, you know, for something being richer in data collection and not being any more accurate, yeah, I'm not going to use it. But if it's using more data and it is very accurate, so a good example, I think, is the ISERIC 4C um, score. Mm, or yeah. COVID, right? That actually yeah, yeah, yeah. is a bit of a pain to fill in, but it gave you, you know, a really great indicator of someone's mort- mortality compared to anything else that was out, out there mm, yeah. uh, before or since. And, and that was a real big data. Um, yeah, it was just, but like, really, what we should say is we get lots of data, we can personalize people's risk based on all these metrics, and we get the computer to do it. So all you need to do is order the tests. And then it prompts you and says, oh, you've not done a, you need to do the the blood gas or whatnot. Oh, but Callum, if only the computer could do it for you. But as you well know, most 
computer systems that are used in healthcare are absolute garbage and aren't aren't even built with that in mind. There's a huge gulf between work as we currently do it, but what is potentially possible. But I, I don't think that the issue is the, the scores are too complex. The issue is how, how we've implemented that sort of data-driven um, decision support into our, our practice. And that's completely aside from the paper, but I think is worth just touching on because like we're really not using the data that we've got available to us yet. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I I disagree. I think that you do have to bear in mind the complexity of the scoring system because at the moment it's humans that are doing it. And the second that you can get the computer to do it all, my mind will be changed and I'll be on your side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're um, listening, computers, uh, do it. In terms of a few other bits and pieces about the method, so they they actually got placebo and gave it to the patients. So they had identical packets of uh, placebo colmoxiclav uh, to give to the patient um, for a five day course. So they were they were properly blinded and they masked the patient, the treating physician, the investigators, the pharmacists that were involved in the trial, and the study coordinators. In terms of outcomes, the primary outcome was fifteen day cure, which was defined as absence of fever. Uh, resolved clinical symptoms, so that's like you know, cough, sputum production, breathlessness, crackles, and no additional antibiotics for any reason. So if they had an unrelated UTI, that was counted as clinical failure. And then secondary outcomes were cure at 30 days, adverse events, CAP score, which is a, um, a sort of pneumonia wellness assessment sort of score that they, they did by telephone questionnaire, and they did that at various time points. Uh, length of stay in hospital at the 15-day time point and compliance with therapy at the 15-day time point was added uh, later on. In terms of statistics, this was a non-inferiority trials. So they, they were not assessing for superiority. They're estimated, they had to estimate the cure that they were going to get, and they, so they estimated 90% cure rate. You'll see, actually, they got a bit less than that. They got about 70%. Uh, their non-inferiority margin was set at about 10%, which is... A bit tight, actually. So I've uh, a lot of other non-inferiority trials, I've seen that margin set at 15%. And uh, I thought it was quite good, actually, that they set it at 10 So when we say the non-inferiority margin, what we mean is that's, the, uh, that's how much crapper the comparator uh, can be to standard of care. And you can still say, okay, yes, it's, it's equivalent in terms of uh, efficacy. And then they looked for an 80% power and they, they threw all that into a, a statistician's face and then out came a, a, a number required of, of 310. That was their sample size they needed. And they did various comparisons of chi-square test and students t-test as appropriate. Uh, and they did an ITT assessment and their definition for intention to treat was anybody who received one or more doses of the drug uh, so that, technically, that's modified intention to treat because ITT would be was randomized to the therapy, and so if you can imagine somebody was randomized to the therapy and then withdrew their consent the next minute, they didn't receive any of the drug, but they would still be included in a classical intention to treat analysis. Well, they they weren't included, 
Um, so this is kind of a modified intention tree, but I think appropriate. Mm. And then their pair protocol analysis was people that received 80% of the course. And you'll see that um, actually, uh, though these two groups are very similar because most people completed. And then they also did a worst case scenario assessment, which was pair protocol analysis, but with all missing outcomes in the basal act time group assumed to be a cure. So the people that got the five days of comoxiclav after initial therapy, any missing data was put into the um, they were cured bit. So that that's kind of front-loading beta-lactams as, uh, for superiority. Hmm. Just one thing to, so you mentioned that the non-inferiority margin of 10% seemed quite tight, which is good. And they do mention in the uh, supplementary data that that was chosen based on guidance released by the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, guidance on the evaluation of medical products indicated for the treatment of bacterial infections. So that was a specific recommendation that they were following. Oh, that's interesting. I wondered if they had chosen a deliberately tight margin because it was an antimicrobial uh, comparison that they were doing. I'd miss that actually, Cal. Yeah, I've, I've, I've not come across this guidance before, but just like a very skim read of the contents page. It looks like something that might be quite interesting to, to dig into uh, a bit yeah. more. Because I guess we've talked before about like, antimicrobials coming to market and how does that come about and uh, this is talking about the evaluation of them so it could be quite mm. useful yeah 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 definitely I, I suppose non-inferiority trials uh, if you're bringing a new antibiotic to market perhaps the you'll be comparing it to a standard of care antibiotic and you, you'll probably want to be doing non-inf in that case and i guess the ema has released guidance to say you can't choose 15 percent; you have to choose yeah, 10 they just say clinical outcomes and intention to treat should be used in a non-inferiority margin of 10 percent and if, mm-hmm. if saying that for all different so for different treatments yeah uh, for a cap for for hap actually they say 12.5 percent. so it differs depending on what the, the clinical picture is oh see that's uh, interesting Okay, okay. And so then in terms of what people got, so about two-thirds of people got comoxiclav, their initial therapy for the first 72 hours, and then another 20% uh, on average got a third-generation kefalosporin, and the ones that are used in France are kefataxime and keftriaxone, same as here. Kefataxime, interesting, is used more than, than keftriaxone, at least in this study. Um, and then there was a very small proportion that received first one and then, uh, you, you know, the other. And in terms of investigations, oh, in fact, here's your here's your answer, Callum's. About half of people got a Legionella urinary antigen in each group and then none were positive. So there you go. And then some of them got new, new, pneumococcal antigen also. About two thirds of them got blood cultures, which there were a total of, grand total of five uh, bacteremias, four strep pneumonia, and one strep constellatus. And the resputum cultures that were taken in maybe mm, like maybe 20% of, of people. Yeah, in 65. Yeah. And they mostly were negative, actually. Uh, there was some strep pneumonia, strep pneumonia grown, but basically they were all clear. Yeah, it's interesting that they. I guess that the timing of the study is, you know, over a long period of time that the data was being collected. And mm. I wonder if that was studying was starting today, then you might think, should we do molecular diagnostics on the respiratory samples? Because I think there's increasing evidence that that's much more sensitive for picking up organisms. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we've kind of moved over to that in Edinburgh, haven't we? For um, certainly for atypicals, and down here we uh, do a respiratory biofire, um, but we, because of cost reasons, we've kind of limited that to you know oncology patients, transplant stuff. Yeah, like I that. think maybe not so much in routine clinical practice. I think it's still more a research tool, but there's building evidence for it. Sorry. Well, no, I, th- I mean, I think it's uh, you know a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the future. Yeah. Just, just the answer question about you know if it's positive, what does that mean? You know, because it's a much more sensitive test. So, yeah. Uh, so on to the results. So what do they actually uh, find? So probably just release this PowerPoint so people can look and and people can have a look at the paper themselves. This is Figure Two, and this is clinical outcome at uh, day fifteen. And there is, uh, they hit their non-inferiority margin. So the the difference was uh, 9.42% in the ITT uh, analysis in favor of the three days of uh, beta-lactam treatment. So against the additional five days. But they're not looking for superiority. They're looking for non-inferiority. And so they they well hit their non-inferiority margin. They were nowhere near it. Uh, and then in the pair protocol analysis, the the differences are not very much. So the between ITT and pair protocol, you drop seven patients in the placebo group and five in the beta time group. So there were really high levels of completion because it was just an additional five days of you know taking a pill twice a day. Um, and so again, there was there was no difference. And then they did sort of breakdowns according to age greater than or less than sixty five, uh, uh, and and age over seventy five. PSI scored less than or greater than seventy, uh, and greater than uh, or less than ninety. And again, there's no uh, situation in which they're uh, anywhere near the non inferiority margin. Yeah, I thought when I was reading the paper that the subgroup analyses were really useful because mm. I guess often with when when I'm reading this sort of paper and it's comparing to uh, treatment groups, I often think like, oh, well, what if the patient's more unwell or what if the, you know, all these questions are going through my mind and they, they were they were answering them pretty effectively. Yeah, have you ever read a really old paper like, well, not really old, but like, even one from like the 80s and 90s and you're like, oh, well, this is... You know, four thousand patients, no sick patients, no women, uh, <laughs> no no old people. So you know, like huge swathes of the population just completely unrepresented, and you just don't see that anymore. Like so, like like this. Um, I can't remember the demographics, but certainly there was like a decent proportion of older patients, female patients, sick patients, defined as the PSI greater than uh, seventeen ninety. Did they say the median age was? 72 and and that was representative of the patient population that they were they were seeing presenting with pneumonia yeah yeah and you know that that's who you want to study it and you basically want to study in what you would um perhaps unkindly have called the geriatric population back in the day now you would just call it the standard general medical population you know that's who's getting pneumonias and then the secondary analyses Cal, that's cure at 30 days, mortality at 30 days, patient with an adverse event related to treatment, length of hospital stay uh, and recovery time in days defined as this that's cap questionnaire that they gave people. Again, there's there's no significant difference between the two groups. So three days comparable to, to eight days at that. 
And then in terms of adverse events, I thought that was just kind of worth commenting on because you've, you've got another five days of colmoxiclav going into the patient. Is that going to cause any differences? Um, interestingly, there wasn't really a huge amount of adverse events. So there was a total of 34 in the beta-lactam group and 24 in the uh, placebo group. You know, which is there's there's more, but there was no significant difference between these two groups. There's only three hundred and something patients in the trial, though, so maybe, um, maybe that was kind of underpowered to detect big differences between them, and the even the patients that had received that 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 went into the placebo group, they'd still received like three days of high dose, mm. you know, colmoxiclav and kefalosporin, and maybe that's enough to kind of cause. Uh, most of the side effect. Of yeah, there, was, there were more digestive, like diarrhea type symptoms with the with the beta lactam group where they had more beta lactams. So I guess you know, I, the, overall, there's not a statistical difference in. Oh yeah, most of these side effects were GI side effects. Yeah, there's a reason that the more you give antibiotics, the more likely you are to get diarrhea. And mm. I also think that you know that high dose amoxicillin dose, we, we don't yet routinely use that. And you do see quite a big increase in the GI side effects compared to the, the sort of previously standard dose of 625 milligrams or 500 plus 125. So it's not surprising. You know, I generally would counsel patients when we're using that higher dose that they're very likely to get gastrointestinal upset. Although mm. interestingly, it was still, what, a fifth of patients. So Yes, yeah, true. You know, it wasn't true. everybody that was getting it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then this other part, I think I had to dig this out of the... Uh, supplemental data, but this was their worst case scenario analysis. So remember, this is where all the all the missing data is acute, assumed to be a beta-lactam uh, group uh, cure. Uh, and again, for cure at day 15, 78% of the placebo group and 72.6% of the beta-lactam group. Uh, and then at day 30, 74% of the placebo group, 80.9% in the beta-lactam group. Uh, and again, no statistically significant difference uh, between those two uh, groups. So I think that's that's fairly convincing to my mind that uh, that three days was uh, comparable. So in conclusion, the uh, the authors found that discontinuing beta-lactam treatment at three days in patients with uh, community-acquired pneumonia who were clinically stable resulted in outcomes that were similar and non-inferior to those in patients who continued their treatment for an additional five days to give a total of eight. So what did I think about it? I thought it was a good trial, Cal. I can't really think of much bad to say about it, to be honest. It was double-blinded. It was randomized. There was a decent primary outcome, I would argue, that cure, cure at two weeks is uh, reasonable for antibiotic trials, certainly. It was adequately powered, and they spent ages trying to get uh, enough numbers for it and ran it over five years to get 300 patients. That's how difficult clinical trials are to recruit. Mm. And, you know, they did this worst-case scenario analysis and still found that the intervention was non-inferior. So that was good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've not read it as in-depth as you did for your presentation. Uh, so thanks, Jane, for taking me through that as well as the listeners. I thought it was, you know, a really impressive trial. There's, you know, methodologically sound. I couldn't think of anything to, 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 to really improve. And just, I guess, doing this sort of trial is so difficult that when something like this comes along, 
is really it's just really i feel really happy when people have done all that work so <laughs> i guess just thanks for for doing that it's, it's huge and it must have been really difficult mm. um and another thing that was just on my mind there was you know just thinking the, that cure rate you know it doesn't seem you might think oh actually 70 80 percent cure rate at day 15 isn't isn't maybe what you would expect you might hope that to be a bit higher and the main reasons that they outlined that people weren't meeting their cure criteria um, was lack of resolution or lack of improvement in symptoms. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't that they were coming back into hospital. It was just that they still had a cough. Yeah, they weren't unwell. Yeah, they didn't have microbiological failure of mm. therapy. Some of them still had a fever, not many. That was one in the placebo group and three in the beta-lactam group. Ah. But most of them, so I think 70% of those who didn't get treatment success in the placebo group and 78% in the beta-lactam group, um, they they didn't meet the cure criteria because of lack of resolution of symptoms, which makes sense because, you know, I guess a lot of the symptoms in pneumonia are, you know, related to once you, even once the organism's dead, you know, there's still going to be... There's yeah, still an inflammatory to... process going on. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know there's for lack of a better word muck in there that needs to come up so you know i don't think that's unexpected and i guess that's just how they've decided to determine what treatment success looks like yes yes and then i'll uh, say some weaknesses about the trial here so these these are their weaknesses really because when i was going through this i was like how am i going to critique this i can't think of a bad thing to say against it this is how i would have run this trial myself and i had my my druthers but anyway there were some excluded populations and it was about 40 percent of people that were screened so some of them had not improved by 72 hours some of them had been diagnosed with atypical pneumonias some were in intensive care and some had renal failure so renal failure was another exclusion criteria so that, that's kind of important to know, because if you're going to be stopping antimicrobial therapy at 72 hours, you have to know who that's not for. And obviously, if somebody's still in intensive care, it would be a bold choice to stop their antimicrobials. But also there are some population groups, like people with atypical pneumonias, which this trial doesn't apply to. Now, there are other trials that have looked at atypical pneumonias that are mentioned in the Shorter is Better uh, website as well. But it's just to say that this study didn't cover it. And in fact, didn't use antimicrobials that would have covered any atypicals because they got comoxiclav and, and cephalosporins before the enrollment uh, time point, And they got either placebo or comoxiclav after the time point. So there was nothing in the trial that would have covered atypical pneumonia. They also didn't collect data on CRP or procalcitonin. Now, some infection specialists will regard that as a strength of the trial, and I'm not sure what camp I'm in, really, but just to say that that wasn't uh, collected, and so they can't comment on the, you know, the effect or influence of, of CRP or procalcitonin. And there was the lower-than-expected cure rate, but, I mean, yeah. you know, 80% at 30 days, and it's just when you phone them up, they say, oh, I've still got a bit of a cough. And then they get dumped into the uh, not cured uh, rate. <laughs> that's that's very different from people being readmitted with, you know, ongoing symptoms yeah. and needing more antibiotics. That was not what we were seeing in the trial. The, in the in the paper, they they go through limitations, and I think they make a really good case for the decisions that they've made. And I guess that's the thing about any research paper is that 
you know, science isn't exact and there is often arguments for doing, you know, can't please everybody. You know, some people will say, well, you yeah. must have collected the procalcitonin in the CRP and other people won't, won't, won't care. And they make the good point that it's not recommended to be done in, in daily practice. And so, you know, their, their, their approach to it was to try and design a study that would really reflect real life clinical practice rather than something that would only apply in a very strict research paradigm. Like the thing I always think about poet is that like, I think for the, for the poet trying effective endocritis, you needed a transesophageal echo to exclude some of the complications we're talking about. And I, I always think like, well, that's really hard to get certainly in, in my practice. So this is really useful. It's something that you read and think I could apply this tomorrow to my patients. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, I think the main thing you have to take away from, you know, a paper, like if, if you agree with its outcomes and its methodology, then the next question is what, you know, what do I do with this information I've just gained? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, you know, going back to the shorter is better website, when you look at the papers that are looking at three days of therapy specifically, so like the all all the shorter arms that are looking at 72 hours, a bunch of them are in kids. Uh, so they're pediatric trials. And this is one of the few, I don't think it's the only one, I think there's another one, but there's uh, one of the few trials that are looking at three days of beta-lactam therapy for pneumonia in adults and that's my population i'm not a pediatric id fellow i'm a adult id fellow you and are now, yeah um and now i'm fairly confident that if i've got a patient who is looking well and hitting has has no positive SARS criteria and they've had 72 hours of what i consider to be appropriate therapy you know, be it a beta-lactam like comoxiglav or keftraxone, or be it amoxicillin or even be a doxycycline. Because I don't think you just need to limit this to the particular antibiotics that were used in the trial. I think you're looking at the syndrome of the patient who looks better at mm. three days. I don't think they need two more days of therapy and five days is frankly as much as I would give them if I had, again, if I had my way. It's funny that like... We get evidence of shorter and shorter durations of therapy, but I think the challenge that I certainly encounter in clinical practice is like clinician anxiety. Now, having mm. a really good paper to to point people to say and like, look, here's the evidence for what we're suggesting, but there's a lot of time that you're just not involved as an infection specialist, and people's practice is is widely varying. And I think stuff like this is really ripe for us to to put in decision support and say. You know, if someone's the diagnosis is pneumonia and in some way the computer can pick up on that and it's community acquired at three days, it looks at these parameters from the electronically inserted ops uh, observations and then it pings up a message saying like, actually, you know, you could probably stop the antibiotics today. The computer doing the, the heavy lifting of, of prompting and, and forcing that behavior change. Yeah, or you write it into your antimicrobial guidance to say, you know, the patient gets 72 hours of therapy. Now, then at that point, you do a hard stop. Yes. And say, do you want to continue? That might slowly influence practice if we highlight it. But I do, one thing that I do wonder, and sorry, another tangent, I love tangent today. I think that people look up guidance when they don't think they know the answer. 
So for things that are unusual or outside their usual scope of practice. And not when they do. And everybody thinks they know how to deal with pneumonias and UTIs and skin soft tissue infection. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. So people don't look at the guidance. And to be honest, I, I routinely check our local guidance for, for when people ask me questions because I'm like, well, sometimes it, it gets updated and I might not know. So yes. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing. I, I'm always trying to align myself to local practice mm, guidance yeah, yeah. unless there's a good reason not to, you know, it's individualized. So don't know if, if that is the solution, because I guess no matter how good data we get of shorter is better, there, there is that part of like translating that into clinical practice and that a lot is going to come down to advocating for this and, and communicating it. Uh, well, oh wait, we could do a podcast episode on that, that would be a way to communicate it. But also about supporting decision-making uh, because people are, you know, have a lot of decisions to make and uh, things like decision support could do that and uh, making it easy for them to do so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, what a great paper. Thanks for, for bringing it, James. Not, not the, like, when was it published? Last, last March, 2021. So yeah. it's not super recent. Anyway, we're, we're playing around with this journal club, mainly being opportunistic because James had done all the work to prepare for it already. <laughs> but uh, an interesting thing to talk about. Yep. If you want to see more of these, then please let us know. You can uh, contact us on idiotspodcasting at gmail.com or you can uh, tweet at us at idiots underscore pod. If you want to leave us a five-star review, you may now do so in your podcast player of choice. And if you want to buy us a coffee, you may now also do so at buymeacoffee.com slash idiotspod. There's a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.